You're listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network, podcast episode number 89. Sam and Lou Intercast, Phil Remington, Shelby American. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. Today, ride along with your Cars of Carlisle crew in our fourth installment of the San Luis series of Intra Podcasts under the CFC Network. Listen to the latest Sam and Lou show, hosted by Cars of Carlisle crew members, Lou Genacopoulos and Sam Faringer. The Muscle Car Millennials will cover the legacy of Phil Remington, the silent partner and legend behind the success of Shelby American. On this journey, we'll come to know Mr. Remington's early life and upbringing, his inherent need for speed, his partnership with Kale Shelby, and most importantly, Phil's role in the Shelby Cobra and Ford GT that led Americans to beat arch-rival Ferrari at Le Mans in 1966, 67, 68, and 69. Close the hood, wipe the grease off your hands, and grab the keys to the Ford GT. It's time to learn about Phil Remington. So, let's get Hello and welcome back, Cubers, to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren, and very excited for this being the fourth iteration, if you will, of the Intercast, where we're featuring Cars of Carlisle staffers uh, with Lou Janikopoulos and, and Sam Farner. These guys have given us such great content. They have put uh, so much work into their four uh, episodes themselves. In fact, uh, the research they put in is weeks in the making. So I want to say thank you to those guys. So glad to have them part of the Cars of Carlisle staff and team. And uh, they give so much, and I really do value what they provide. So thanks to the guys. And In fact, uh, a way to say thank you to all of us is if you like what you hear, uh, reach out to us. Let us know. We welcome your feedback. Be sure to share. Uh, let your friends know about us. Put the word out. Certainly like, review, subscribe, uh, five stars, any of that means a lot. And it helps us just build our street cred and uh, grow so that as we grow, more opportunities come. And as more opportunities come, we can do more and, and even provide more. So we, uh, we want to say thank you to everyone and, and thanks in advance for you supporting us in return. So without further ado, let's jump over to the uh, Studio C and we'll have Sam and Lou take it from there. Thank you, Darren, for that introduction. And uh, Sam, how are you feeling? Feeling pretty good, Lou. I'm uh, pretty happy to be back. Had a nice long holiday break, but it's good to be back and uh, recording with you. Quick editor's note, even though I don't edit these. Uh, Gay, we appreciate the correction on the Studebaker podcast and then your follow-up podcast. Yes, we did mess up a date. We are not perfect. We don't claim to be experts on any one of these subjects. We just like talking about them. So we'll try and get better. This 32 Studebaker president was a fine automobile. Uh, and the example that was shown at the Hershey Museum back in the fall was a nice car to uh, kind of kick our podcast off for that topic. So 
We do appreciate it. Thanks for listening to it, and uh, yours was great as well. So, Sam, what do we uh, what we got to on today's docket there? Well, today we wanted to originally start talking about Carroll Shelby and kind of the impact he's had on the automotive industry over the years. Um, and with that, Lou kind of took on a fascination with the movie that had come out, Ford versus Ferrari. And from that, he went down a rabbit hole of a man named Phil Remington and everything that he's done for what the GT40s were, the AC Cobras, and a litany of other cars um, across you know the 60s and even the race scene since then. So we're going to go a little more into Phil Remington than what we are Carroll Shelby. I mean, we all know that story's been told a lot. Uh, we will touch on him for a little bit, but uh, yeah, we, we really want to talk about Phil today. Yeah, and the cool thing was Ray McKinnon, who played Phil in the movie, talked a lot about Remington's practicality and how he accomplished problems. I mean, we'll get into a little bit more in depth as we go, but you look at a Shelby product that came from the 62 to 68 era, and it was designed by Remington, produced by Remington, engineered by Remington. I mean, he had his name on everything, almost as a joke in like a tongue-in-cheek way, but it was legitimate. Um, And Sam will cover kind of Carol's life and and some overlaps with Remington's early life, and we'll just kind of get into the topic from there but certainly don't want to take anything away from the movie i I mean we've all seen it well i haven't seen it yet i'm i'm still holding out uh my dad and i will go see it or rent it whenever it comes to video so i i was kind of slacking a little bit but um i i will get there will and if you haven't seen it there will be spoiler alerts in history that you could easily google um I think we all know what happened with the Lamar win in 1966, preceded by 1967, preceded by 1968, and then finally 1969. Although Remington himself only had a direct hand in the 66 and 67 Lamar wins. But with that being said, Samuel, where do you want to start? I guess with Carol's life early and, and kind of go from there? Or? If you want to read or. Um watch some videos on a little more about the Lamar and the Ford versus Ferrari stuff. There's a few things that we would definitely recommend. Uh, Go Like Hell by AJ Bame. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but it's the book that that Ford versus Ferrari is based upon. Another one is This Time Tomorrow put out by the Ford Motor Company. The narration was done by Ken Miles, Carol Shelby, and Bruce McLaren. So you get to hear from a bunch of legends themselves. Yeah, and the cool thing about that is it was done shortly after 1966, so Ken only had a short life from the time winning Lamar to his untimely death testing a Mark IV that is another Phil Remington product. So it, it's a really cool and unique. It's only 28 minutes long. It's worth the time. Yeah, well worth the listen. And then two more that we want to give credit to, uh, both done by Adam Carolla and Nate Adams, The 24-Hour War and Shelby American. So if you haven't had a chance, definitely check them out. Um, There's a ton of articles, and we'll definitely talk about some more later on in the podcast uh, that we took a lot of information from and were just great listens or great reads. So if you get a chance, you have a little bit of time, check those out. But if you haven't seen the movie, like me, uh, you might want to not listen to this portion because we will give a few spoilers. Now, if you know your automotive history, they won't be too big of spoilers, so... Don't feel like you're missing out too much by listening to this and not seeing the movie yet. As the Ford documentaries cover that we just talked about, Ford brings a number of GT40s led by the Shelby American team, Carroll Shelby leading this entire charge. 
Tulema in 1966 and has the photo finish one, two, three, led by two Shelby American sponsored teams with drivers Ken Miles and Deddy Holm, as well as the second place that ended up being the first place because of a little technicality that we shouldn't really talk about, but we will. Well, it was just a quick stipulation in the fact that where that car had started was 60 feet behind the first place car. So technically that car traveled a further distance in a shorter amount of time. Right. Is essentially what that rule boils down to. Not to tangent too much, but essentially Ken Miles with these 66 tune GT40s that are given complete tr- control by Carroll Shelby was going to be the first driver to have the triple crown, winning Daytona, Sebring, and then going to Le Mans. He dominated the entire race. In fact, he was ordered by Ford leadership to slow down to stage this finish. Yeah, and they actually had, they were given like three different options on how they could have done that. So had he just ignored that and went to win the race. And Ken was a spitfire and he he, probably would have ignored it in any other situation. But but. yeah, um, but you know, history tells a different story. So yeah, it is kind of crazy. He could have been the first winner um, and from a triple crown standpoint. Anyway, two Shelby American teams, Ken and Denny, Bruce McLaren and Chris Amon. Oramon, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name. And then the third person, uh, Ronnie Bucknam and Dick Hutcherson from Holman and Moody, which also have a connection to Remington that we'll get in a little bit later. They cross one, two, three. Huge win for Ford. He accomplishes what he set out to do and really sets the stage for the next four years in, in factory racing um, on an international scale. Yeah, and back to the the possibility of that being the very first triple crown finish um, kind of has like a, a sad twist to it. Cause sadly only two months later uh, miles actually died while testing the Mark four GT 40 uh, developed by the subject of this podcast, Phil Remington and his crew. Yeah. I think it's important before we get into Remington's life legacy, what he accomplished or Shelby directly, maybe set the stage a little bit. With Shelby's life, how we got to this point. Uh, Sam, you want to take that? or? Yeah, a lot of people know Carol Shelby's uh, backstory. One of the most famous uh, things people talk about is him being a chicken farmer. Because uh, he had a lot of businesses he did, uh, and chicken farming being one of them. Um, but when he was young, he, he was always known as a fearless individual. Uh, so he had an early, early fascination with airplanes and... Just a quick thing, if you want to check out a fantastic interview where Carol Shelby talks about his life, it's called The Lost Interview. You can look it up on YouTube. It's about an hour and a half long um, where Shelby just gets to kind of talk through everything. It is absolutely amazing and will do much better justice to his life than we will. In typical Shelby fashion, he asks about 25 minutes into the interview how long they're doing this for, and the interview guy's like, hey, is as long as you want to talk, we're going to listen. And she was like, all right, let's do it. And and at the time he was promoting his reborn company in Nevada when they experimented with the North star engines and, and made the, I don't know, 2000, 2001 Shelby's. They, they had a CS, CSX number. I just don't know the specifics about it, but it's a really cool interview and a, a kind of a, a different way to look at things directly from his point of view. And he gives a lot of credit to Remington throughout it. So it's definitely worth the listen in addition to the four documentaries we covered. Yeah, certainly. 
So going back to his life, um, you know, we had said that he has a fascination with airplanes. When he was young, um, you know, he just he caught the bug when he was just a young, young kid and eventually joined uh, the armed forces and became a sergeant pilot during World War II uh, before the U.S. got involved in the war. His role essentially was to train pilots and be a test pilot for all the new aircraft that were coming out. When Shelby returned to the U.S., he had several jobs, started a bunch of companies, uh, but always had this fascination with sports car racing and uh, just always kind of kept that on the back burner. Uh, but like I had said, you know, he was a chicken farmer. He he did a whole bunch of different things before he got to this point, but always held on to that wanting to build his own car. Uh, and he actually had a few different times where he had tried that before he got to where we're going. Um but in his racing career, he started as an amateur racing, amateur racer, racing uh, Allards, MGs, uh, I think Jags at one point, like early, early on. He was extremely, extremely successful at this and hit his pinnacle winning the Le Mans for Aston Martin team in 1959. Now, we, we say he's fearless, uh, and in his younger days, he was, but even by Shelby's own admission, as he got older, he had a wife, he had kids. Uh, there was a turning point for him where he realized he wasn't willing to give it all to race like some other racers would. So he wasn't going to go out there and die on the track. And again, in that, that YouTube video, it's awesome. He talks about the day he decided uh, to not race. And Lou, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, race? I mean, he literally almost died while racing for his most famous win. And up until this point, while Shelby was really successful as a both an amateur and a professional, he still got slighted by the likes of Ferrari. He won in a Ferrari in a U.S.-based race, thought he was going to get an invite from the Ferrari team to race in a specific race, and did not get that invite. So instead, he goes with Aston Martin, wins the 1959 Le Mans, but talks about during basically the last third of the leg of the final, I don't know, eight hours of the race, He's popping heart medication because he feels his heart ready to pound out of its chest. I mean, it's crazy. The, the way he talks about having to literally slow down on a Moussan straight or any part of a specific Le Mans portion of that race to just keep himself intact, let alone the car. Because as we know from the Ford versus Ferrari movie, Miles doesn't just talk about going fast. He talks about being one with the car and preserving the car and not pushing it to its limits at all points because you have to survive 24 hours. It's not a NASCAR race where it's 500 laps and three and a half, four hours later, it's over. And this is a 24 hour race day and night rain almost every year, if not for the predominant part of the race, a large majority. I mean, it's crazy. So Shelby's not only preserving a, an open car because it's not a coupe. He is also preserving his life where at that point he realized this may not be his legacy within automobile manufacturer or automobile racing. He still wins, yeah, which is crazy. He's still a prolific racer, but like oddly wasn't the guy who was like racing is my entire life. And this is all I ever want to do. And still was one of the best. Um, and after that 59 race, I mean, that was the day he walked away from racing. And again, in this YouTube video, he talks about how he's just kind of nowadays, you know, a, a racer, even, you know, some middle of the road racer retires and you throw a parade and everybody talks about it and it's all over, you know, sports networks and all that. And in his day, you know, it, the respected thing to do was to just, 
you know, hop out of the car and that was it. And, uh, and he kind of moved on from there and went into what we really know him for now. Yeah. And so he leaves 59 Lamar starts another business, <laughs> becomes really successful in that business, sells the business. And, and now he is at this point, what we know him as not only an incredible driver, but he's also an incredible businessman, a salesperson, a marketer, an overall car enthusiast, obsessed with winning and going fast. He had heart problems his entire life, first diagnosed at age seven, dealt with it, and tried to find his next path with a little cash influxed. And ultimately, he moves out west to California with his wife and finds Shelby American in 1962. But doesn't just find Shelby American in 1962 in Venice Beach. No, and he almost lucks into Phil Remington in a pursuit of, of really another uh, venture, which was uh, he purchased uh, Lance Reventlow. Is that how you say the name? Yeah, it was Reventlow's company uh, building a... They're building Scarabs. Scarab sports car, yeah. which was also a, a successful car. Mm-hmm. But not only does he purchase the building, he walks in, scopes it out, and Reventlow's got a team there led by chief designer and engineer Phil Remington. So Shelby takes one look, sees that Reventlow's closing shop, buys the property, and ultimately hires Remington as his chief engineer in Shelby's name as Shelby American. Yeah, and I think uh, Remington like left work one day working for Reventlow and then came back and, you know, in over the weekend or, you know, ne next couple of days. And he was now working for Shelby and never left the place that he worked, which was pretty cool. Yeah, he literally said, I showed up on a, a Monday, same place, same toolbox, same team, different name on the check. Yep. So that leads us into, you know, we, we talked about Shelby a little bit. Let's talk about Phil Remington and kind of, you know, his start. I know that he has a very mirror image kind of life to Shelby. Uh, there, there's a lot of correlations you can make with those two growing up. Lou, do you want to talk about him a little bit and you know what it was like for him growing up? Yeah, and again, we did a lot of research on Remington and this topic and, and just trying to take a different angle to it. There's a Road and Track article published in 2013, shortly after Phil's death. He, he passed away February 9th, 2013, written by Colin Comer who spent a lot of time with Remington in the latter part of his life. I mean, Remington was well over 90 years old at this point. I believe he was 92 when he passed and really does an entire, which seems like a day that he spends with him going through Remington's life from Shelby to what he was currently doing at the time. Uh, and it's a really unique read. I, I think we can get it in the newsletter as this, uh, email blast goes out for this episode. We'll send it to Darren, but it's really interesting and in, in a kind of a, a unique way to hear the life of Remington and, and you get his personality. Nothing was ever too big. He was very practical and just got things done with his hands. Well, and that's a great thing because Remington as a person <clears throat> was one of those guys who he would just, you know, keep his head down, be in the background and go to work. You know, he wasn't looking for the fanfare. So th there aren't going to be quite as many articles. Now, after his passing, uh, there are quite a few big uh, sports-related, you know, news outlets, uh, Road and Track, Hemmings, you know, all that, a lot of really good articles post-death. But unlike Carroll Shelby, where there's a lot of people following him and, 
you know, uh, some media stuff. There really wasn't that with Phil because he didn't want that spotlight. Um, you know, he just wanted to do his job and do it well. Yep. So Remington was a California boy. He was born in Santa Monica in 1921. He was taking pre-engineering classes at Santa Monica Junior College by 1938. And his first job was working for Northrop Aircraft as a component inspector. Also, like Carroll, always had a need for speed and going fast. He was a founding member of the legendary Santa Monica Low Flyers Hot Rod Club, a group that required each one of its members to prove that their car can exceed 90 miles per hour. Once you got that done, and it was done, I mean, literally by light signals and stopwatch yep, by people the boys. On the side, timing them, making sure. Hanging you know, out. Yeah. <laughs> like the earliest stages of hot rodding. We're talking pre-war, just a bunch of guys doing whatever they could to, to strip a Model A or, or whatever it may be. Whatever you had, you showed up with. And you got into this now what's known as a famous prestigious at the time club. He also got chased by the cops every now and then, and I don't think uh, their cars could keep up, but these guys were serious hot rodders that weren't looking for any type of street credit. They were just having fun with their buddies, hanging out, and somewhat staying out of trouble, I guess. But his early years literally are all stories like that, and he was you know, a 19-year-old kid, basically, with a modified 1934 Ford, and then they got to the Dry Lakes, which is where it really all started to, to take on from an engineering standpoint for him. He was hooked, started building modified cars in his parents' garage that would eventually exceed 140 miles per hour, but he wasn't doing it alone. Just to name a few of his friends that you may or may not have some familiarity with, uh, Phil Hill, who is pretty much linked with him throughout his entire career into the Shelby era, Jack Engel of, of Engel Racing Cams, Vic Edelbrock Sr., Stu Hillborn of Hillborn Injection, Eddie Meyer, etc. I mean, the list kind of goes on, and it's pretty unique, but there's a point where World War II intervenes here, and Remington is called to serve, much like Shelby was, where he joined the Air Corps in 1940, served his time. He was honestly too young to actually enlist, but... He kind of lied, like a lot of people did, to serve their country so admirably. He was also colorblind, so he had to memorize the charts to even be accepted into the Air Corps. Or Air Corps, excuse me. And he was flying in the South Pacific as a B-24 uh, flight engineer. So it's kind of, as Colin says here, it's how he operated. Extraordinary moments described with absolutely no fanfare. It was just matter of fact. And his favorite part of the war was getting out. So, Sam, I, I mean, I don't know about you. So far, both lives are, are very similar up until this point when we're looking at post-World War II. Yeah, obsession with cars, obsession with speed, aviation, um, <clears throat> just going fast and, and building something out of nothing. You know, Carroll Shelby, a little bit more, he wanted to build his own car. Uh, th that was always his goal, was to build his own vehicle, um, whereas Phil Remington wanted to just go fast um, in whatever he had. So, it, but very parallel um, ways that their lives came. You know, whereas Phil was more of on the engineering side, though, Carol was that supreme marketer, salesman, businessman. 
um, which made them such a beautiful fit together. Right. And really, after the war, Remington got right back to where he started. He's out on the dry lakes being hired by people to make their cars go faster. He was an engineer first, right? So working with everyone and anyone to first and foremost help, but also make a little bit of money. Because at the time, it's not like racing today where you need X amount of money to get into NASCAR. or You need X amount of money to even compete in something you know more user-friendly like autocrossing. I mean, it takes a lot to play. But at the time, it was just a bunch of buddies going out, finding ways to make their cars lighter and faster to compete. And yeah, money mattered. You won some money for winning races, but it wasn't the cost of entry. So... It was, a, it was a little more like talent based than it was, you know, who has the best parts, you know, it, it, it you got to think there wasn't the huge, uh, modified aftermarket that, you know, we're all accustomed to these days. You know, it was more grit and determination by, you know, overall car enthusiasts that, that truly love what they were doing. Those are the guys that were winning. Right. So here we are. And throughout the fifties, Remington's doing this. He's, you know, working jobs as needed, but He's also primarily a race car engineer and a racer himself. Yeah. And in, so this kind of, we now get back to what we were talking about uh, with Revlento in, in the late fifties, Remington was approached by Lance Revlento to uh, become the head engineer for building his own car, uh, the Scarab. We should also make it clear that Revlento had a lot of money. He did. He was the heir to the Woolworth fortune, um, the son of Barbara Hutton and the stepson of Cary Grant. So this man had a lot of money. I have no idea who those people are. <laughs> Regardless. <laughs> uh, he'd been, Revlento had been racing in Europe. Uh, like we said, wanted to build his own car, the Scarab. So he set up the shop in Marina del Rey. And that is when Phil came on as the chief engineer. And the car was super successful. Uh, again, I didn't know much about it before we started doing this research, but Road and Track, ironically enough, same company that Colin wrote this article for, called it the most potent, potent sports car in the world. And Reventhal wanted more. He wanted it to be a era period, correct, Formula One racer in Europe and be competitive. And Remington kind of said later in life, it was a front engine car that was down on power and he could not compete with these rear engine F1 cars. They built a mid, uh, a mid engine F1, but by the time they did that, the IRS came knocking. Uh, I don't know what exactly happened, but Lance got into a little bit of trouble and apparently they only allowed it to call it as a business loss for so long before they started to recognize it not really being a business. So as they're shutting down Lance's place, someone walks in. Yeah, and that brings us right back to Carol Shelby walks in, takes over the shop. Uh, Remington goes to work at his same bench with his same tools, uh, now getting paid by Carol Shelby. So this is when <clears throat> Shelby had actually brought over the first of the Cobras that he had built at Dean Moon's shop. And I guess just a quick piece of history here we know carol shelby for the cobra cars the two-seaters from england that were built by ac and this is where the two first collaborated in a, a full partnership under the shelby american name to create the csx series shelby cobra so just like that shelby brings the cobra he built at d moon shop 
to the former Revenflow building. Same place for Phil, different name, Shelby American, same check number, but different name on the check. And here they are starting their first partnership, improving this AC-bodied and AC-chassied Shelby Cobra with a Ford 260 at first, and eventually it would evolve into the 289 but and 427, but... Yeah, and I think that's a... There's an important distinction that I actually didn't know about until we had gotten a little further into this research. So the AC Cobra is one of those things with, you know, we, we've always been told it's an AC Cobra, <clears throat> but listening to Carol Shelby reading about Phil Remington, um, from what we understand, the chassis that was brought over essentially was completely de-engineered or I, let me say deconstruction and or deconstructed and re-engineered because the pieces were breaking, nothing worked. So the fact that it is known as the AC Cobra is kind of odd because it really didn't have any AC parts on it. Um, Outside the body, right? Yeah, it was essentially by the time they were all finished with it, you know, they, they kept saying, you know, even every nut and bolt would break off and they'd have to replace it. So, you know, it. It started as an AC uh, body and chassis and ended as just an AC sheet metal. Right. Which brings us to the first car Phil really list on his resume, the competition Cobras. So yeah, Carol had to build enough cars to sell in partnership with Ford because they did, at this point, Ford was supplying engines. I don't know who Carol convinced. He talks about it in his uh, the interview, the hour and a half interview, the lost one. But he convinced someone at Ford to give him a bunch of engines to put in these little Shelbys and make some money. And they weren't making a lot of money, but just enough to fund their racing careers. So they built several cars that are taking down every Corvette in every form of racing domestically, as well as competing at a Le Mans and competing internationally and, and being able to do just enough with a relatively small engine and 289 in its biggest capacity and a small car, but they weren't super aerodynamic. They were just a lot of fun. And, and Carol actually himself preferred the 289 version. He felt like the 427 versions that they experimented with later were just a little too much power. Well, yeah. Cause it, in his mind, the Cobra was built like the European sports cars, you know, the MGs, the Jags, uh, Aston's like the small, sporty little cars, uh, six cylinder engines. Um, he talks about how when they went to the 427, you know, part of the problem is, um, you're not just upgrading the size of the engine, you're upgrading the size of the transmission, the size of the rest of the drivetrain, uh, back to the rear end. Everything has to get bigger, beefier, and ultimately heavier. Um, one of the things that they did with these Cobras that, you know, the real secret to their success, as they would say, was actually the width of the tires that they had put on. Um, with the ch the chassis that they had, they could fit much larger tires. So the cars, while not technically superior to really anything else, were winning, and you know, by Carroll's own admission, strictly because they had bigger tires than what everybody else would put on yeah. at the time. Yeah, it was a really unique start to their partnership. Nothing really to do with either Remington or Shelby outside of having to put his name on them and building the cars, but Ford did build the, the 1965 GT350, starting, again, another alternate source of income for Shelby to continue on with the company. 
giving world-class, you know, tools and, and engineers from around the world being able to continue and fuel their passion for racing. But I think we all know where we want to get. Oh, and that is definitely the GT, the GT 40, um, which I, I mean, this is the crux of the movie Ford versus Ferrari. This is the car. And uh, let's start with a little bit of backstory on why this car was ever built in the first place. And just really quick sidebar. We're not going to talk about the Shelby Daytona coupe, the car that won Le Mans on its own right. Uh, it was in an alternate class. It wasn't a manufacturer's class. I, I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but Remington, although had a part in it, this was, that car was primarily a Peter Brock and Ken miles design almost in the back of the shop for a brief period of time. It was not their main focus. So while it's personally my favorite Shelby car, we're not going to talk about it. We're going to focus on the most famous Shelby slash Ford combination that had every fingerprint over every inch of the sheet metal, the engine suspension interior. I mean, you name it, Remington touched it in some degree. Okay. So first and foremost, why did the deuce Henry Ford the second even want to participate in Lamar? Mainly, Actually, not mainly, solely because he hated Ferrari so, so bad. Um, there was an opportunity at the time uh, to for Ford to acquire Ferrari, and Ford wanted to really bad. Uh, they got into a little bit of an issue where Ferrari wanted to re- retain control over the sports car division, uh, keep the name, uh, keep all of the, you know, the oversight, and essentially be the CEO of that portion. Uh, they came to a point where Ferrari kind of quickly and abruptly removed himself from that portion of the deal. It, this kind of enraged Ford. And Ford decided to open up his checkbook and throw more money at any racing project, I believe, ever, since and ever. I mean, <laughs> the most money ever thrown at anything, any car racing project like this just to beat Ferrari. That was the sole motivation of why this started. And Shelby uh, and Phil Remington were the men behind it. Luke, tell us a little bit about this car. Yeah, so Lola uh, Design Corporation, Lola Engineering, I don't know the actual company, but Lola out in England, much like AC, had a race car body and chassis that Ford became partners with to ultimately create the GT40. Uh, 40 standing for the car was 40 inches off the ground from roof line to body, to road, excuse me. So Road to windshield. Right. So they enter in this agreement, and Shelby's a part of the team in 64 as they begin this journey. He is not the lead. He is not controlling anything. It's Ford has operational and engineering design control led by Roy Lund, who's a Ford employee. And then Lola also has a large involvement because it's ultimately their body and chassis. So they go together and they have a massive disappointment season in 64 following a Nassau race in 64. They literally ship cars that just raced after, you know, engine issues and aerodynamic issues and and the whole nine. And they ship them right to Shelby has now moved from the original location to an, an airport hangar style facility in California. And he's now given full operational control. Lund and Ford still hold engineering control. And then 
kind of Phil Remington happens. Yeah, and they also had uh, John Wire. Uh, he was a team manager for Aston Martin prior. Um, and I believe they started, th- this began with like a mid-engine Mustang 1 concept car. Um, I, I think the engine in that was a four-cylinder, like 1.7 liter four-cylinder. Yeah, these were not powerful cars. No, not at all. Um, but this team that had come together is, is what began the GT40. Um, so Remington says to Colin in the Road and Track article that the GT wasn't too bad to start with, where I think the most, in, in my opinion, my favorite part of the movie is Remington asks for a ball of wool and Ford Engineering's kind of looking at him like, hey, what do you need a ball of wool to test this new GT? They have the 289 in at this point. They're starting to, to get more progressive in terms of power. They're missing aerodynamics, braking, uh, wire wheels, I believe, are still on it at this point. I don't, yeah, I don't at know. At that point, they still had like, the wire spoke wheels. <laughs> and and I, I guess let's be clear here. The ball of wool scene is, is almost like a joke because they're taping just four-inch piece of strings to every inch of the car to kind of see as it's going around a track how it's doing but it's not like ford motor company led by led by roy lunn didn't have aerodynamic machines computers uh, i don't know if a wind tunnel was present but they had a lot of engineering advancements that shelby did not have but here's remington having him and his team tape four inch pieces of wool string all over the body and i think that was the first major advancement toward the car they pretty much redesigned everything, whether it was subtle or not, but it was no longer a Lola. It was a Ford Shelby GT40. Yeah, and with that, you know, Remington, and I, I believe this is in the, the Road and Track interview, um, Remington kind of says, oh, that it wasn't too much to have to do. And that was kind of his subtle uh, and undersold way uh, of, of speaking, but realistically, they did everything pretty much from the ground up. Um, you know, it, to him, they didn't have to do much, only included brakes, suspension, chassis, aerodynamics, weight reduction, engine upgrade. So literally they did everything. And with that, some of the big advancements that they had come with it, that really helped them win the races uh, came in the braking section. And some of those advancements were the free floating rotors uh, to make for quicker changes Um, so leading to shorter pit stops, uh, they were having an issue where the rotors would break with, uh, straight drilled cooling passages. Yeah. Cooling passages. So they actually developed a curved cooling passage, which cut down on that, which means less changing things out. Um, just a ton of little, almost fly by the seat of your pants, um, innovations that really made this car stand above Ferrari. Yeah, it was pretty cool. You see it in the movie. Uh, Remington is going through the rule book, and he's kind of looking at it, and he's, well, there's nothing that says you can't change a one-piece multiple part at one time. So they designed this all-in-one rotor, caliper, pad, control arm assembly where it was quick release, quick install. And all teams got access to this. The Holman Moody team. Shelby American team, I, I mean, Ford was trying to win regardless of, of what sponsored team wins. But there's a rumor 
at one point, Miles comes in during Lamas in 1966, swaps in new rotors, and returns a lap later. Remington and the team are looking around. They're like, what's going on? He's like, the, the brakes aren't right. They're not right. And Shelby American is essentially like, well, they're right. We just swapped these in. And they had this, this process where they're betting rotors to not have to allow racers to kind of break them in in the first lap. They're doing them on the sidelines with, you know, sanding techniques, et cetera. And it's rumored that the Holman Moody team, who ended up coming in third place, stole a set of those bedded in rotors. But I don't know if that's true. It's, it's only hearsay. It is written in. It might be on the Shelby official website. But here we are 50 years later. And these techniques, led by Phil Remington, are the reason that not only they win Le Mans 1966 with the Mark II, they also win Le Mans 1967 and 68 with the Mark IV that, unfortunately, Ken Miles did pass away in testing this new honeycomb design to have uh, increased strength within the chassis and body as well as a, a lighter form of, of weight reduction. So so with the combination of the brake improvements, the cooling com- uh, improvements of the brakes, the aerodynamics led by wool, and the engines, the 427s that really powered these things to a one, two, three finish in 1966. This starts a four year win streak for Ford and Shelby American for 66, 67 by 68. Shelby is now retired to Africa. Um, Shelby American kind of disbands as a, a company. When I think he left mainly because he was tired of the, the politics in Detroit and having people, you know, fight against them. I I know that there was a lot of talk from uh, Shelby about how people who weren't on his team uh, and his team was doing so well, kind of worked to undermine him. And Shelby never really cared about that. He just wanted to build cars. And I I think in 68, he kind of got fed up and, and that was the end for him. Yeah. And it's something you never saw Remington do even during, you know, 66, for example, they're all celebrating in the winter circle and rightfully so. I mean, McLaren wins, by technicality, Ken Miles is, is still a super accomplished racer. Shelby and Mr. Ford are, are in the winner circle, and Remington's packing up his tools. The job was over for him. He accomplished the mission. He accomplished the task. And now it's, hey, let's get back to the U.S. and, and what's next. And that's kind of a testament to his character. Of You know, he was always described that way. And even uh, when he was eulogized by a lot of different people in the racing industry after he passed, you know, that was a common theme with him is, you know, he, he wasn't looking for the accolades. He was looking to get the job done. And once the job was done, it was time to move on to the next job. And, you know, he was a man who never stopped working. Yep. And they accomplished that same job three times over 66, 67 Ford goes on and does it 68 and 69. But 68 is kind of a, a whole different path that Remington takes. He he ends up uh, partnering with Holman and Moody, with John Holman, that he knows again from the overall GT program, moves out to North Carolina and works on their NASCAR vehicles with the, the Cobra Jet Torinos. Not really for him. Uh, we kind of, I don't want to say we, we talked ill on NASCAR earlier, but it's a lot different in terms of a, a technical engineering challenge for a 24 hour race as it is for a 500 lap race around an oval. Right. 
And it, it really, I, I mean, truthfully, he never talked bad about it. His wife and, and himself, they're California born and raised. They did not love North Carolina. So he gets an opportunity with Dan Gurney, who, again, uh, another racer for Shelby American in 1966 Lamar. After, which was a success again with the Holman and Moody NASCAR team because they win pretty much every and any race. I mean, not literally, but they won the championship for that year. Kind of decides to move back to California, and, and he's given the opportunity by Dan Gurney, who, again, another Shelby recruit as a racer. He was one of the do-not-finishes with a 7-liter Mark II, a 427 Mark II, in 1966, they, uh, due to a radiator in like the 18th hour, or probably they would have finished, but again, showing a testament to a 24 hour race. Uh, he's recruited in Gurney's new company, All American Racers, where kind of ceremoniously, Remington goes on to live a, a relatively quiet lifestyle out of the spotlight for 40 plus years. Yeah, out of the spotlight for sure, but the impact that he had while with AAR was just incredible. I mean, the amount of different sporting applications that he was responsible for helping in Can-Am, Formula One, Formula 5000, uh, you know, the Indy 500, Trans-Am, GTP, everything you could possibly imagine in high-class racing, he had a hand in. I mean, when you look at all-American racers... They had 78 different type of racing victories throughout that 40 year from, if you look at 1969 through, you know, the early 2000s. And, and like you said, they've won the Indianapolis 500, 12 hours of Sebring, 24 hours of Daytona, eight different type of championships with Gurney's Eagle race cars, customers winning three Indianapolis 500 races and three different championships. Like it's crazy. And Remington had a hand in pretty much every one. I mean, if you even go into the later life where he's 80, 85 years old, he still has his own workshop, his own workbench, and he's teaching the younger generations of racers how to do X, Y, Z, and going back to techniques he used in 1970, 1971. Um, it's almost unheard of today in terms of him just being a practical engineer and not over complicating a problem and, and just finding a simple solution. Yeah. And I, I think there was a story I, and I don't remember which of the articles I pulled this from. I would love to be able to give credit to it um, where they were talking about one of the tools that he used. Um, I guess they had brought in a new tube bending machine and he kind of looked at it skeptically because he had a forming thing, an implement that he had made off of a leaf spring off an old model T and that's what he had always used. And he got this new tube bending machine. And he's just like, I, I don't need that. Like it is very simple, not overcomplicated. Don't over engineer it. You know, that was just his way of life. Yeah. I, I mean, to kind of close the loop on, on Phil Remington again, it was, it was a little bit difficult to find a lot of information about someone who didn't like the spotlight, but the stories you hear and, and what is written out there, I mean, the guy toward his latter part of his life because of not only his age, but in his early life, he was on a motorcycle at a stoplight or a stop sign and was run over by a bus. And as his leg is going to be amputated, 
his mother sneaks him out of the hospital so he doesn't lose his leg and he never had full control of of his extremities in, in some regard but in his later part of his life he had struggles from his hands being so beat up not only from the work he's doing over his years but his old age some health problems he can't zip up his jeans or his pants he can't physically grab the zipper so he goes out to his back shop and just forms out of a hanger and some other old tool equipment a a tool to literally zip up and zip down his pants i mean the guy literally is the definition of finding a practical solution to something that's not easily accomplished and he did yeah for sure and unfortunately uh phil remington passed away on february 9th of 2013 um, he was remembered by a lot of the greats, you know, Lou earlier in the episode had mentioned a bunch of the people he began racing with out in California, you know, which in their own right went on to become legends of the sport. Um, but even Carol Shelby by his own admission says that, you know, a lot of the things that he was able to do would not have been possible without Phil Remington. We've been talking this whole time, how he wanted to stay out of the spotlight, but all of the things that he did made everybody around him better and made a lot of crazy innovations almost, you know, just out of out of nowhere that Phil would come up with. So his impact has been just long, long lasting. And, you know, for a guy who worked, he was born in what, the 20s? 1921. 21, and he worked until 2010s. I mean, that's an incredible body of work, and he's had a hand in a lot of stuff. And Remington was honored in the Motorsports Hall of Fame class of 2019 sports car inductee. He was uh, noted as a seven-decade career as one of auto racing's top craftsmen, filled with success, victory, and championships. His resume was his reputation, and the serial success he savored made him welcome anywhere he chose to park his toolbox. Although he didn't go too far after Shelby and went right to AAR. That toolbox (laughs) stayed pretty close. Uh, those he worked with alongside knew him as the man who can simply get things done. With that being said, this was probably my most favorite research article I've ever done. I mean, go rewatch Ford vs. Ferrari and you'll get snippets of Phil. You'll get him trying to sell a Shelby out of Carol's shop at one point where he needs Carol's help. And that never happened. They were never selling cars out of Carol's direct shop. A little artistic license. Yeah, they were sold through Ford and Lincoln dealerships. It wasn't this special thing where you can go meet Carol, hang out, have a test drive. But that was, as he was so affectionately called, that was Rem. He was doing anything Shelby or anyone else asked of him to do and was just trying to get things done in a, an appropriate way. And as we wrap up... Um one thing I really want to point all of you to, if you get a chance to sit down and read this, it's an article from roadandtrack.com uh, published on June 18th of 2013, written by Colin Comer. It's just called The Life of Phil Remington. Lou and I have read this article each, uh, probably a dozen times between the two of us. Uh, you, we're very much, a lot of our research came from this because it's a beautiful piece on a guy who gets to sit down with Phil for a while and walk through his life and hear his story and kind of see him firsthand. So if you get a chance, sit down and read that. It is well worth the read. It should be noted that Colin picks him up and at the time a brand new GT500, Shelby GT500 to 2013, and Phil immediately picks the car apart, <laughs> um, which was what, REM. That I was think REM. In that one, in that same article, he was talking about 
like the car aficionado and he's like running his hand along the paint and he's like, Oh, what the painter have to leave early today? Yeah. Like, yep. you know, 91 year old man, you Colin know? arranges for a 64, uh, Cobra 289 ride. And Phil's like, yeah, these carburetors are off. Yeah, tune like, them. Oh, this, this isn't right. <laughs> but, uh, as always, we, we appreciate, you know, the people who have given us the opportunity to research this type of stuff. So for Phil Remington, his family and, Shelby American, all American racers. Uh, thank you for your contributions. And until next time, Sam. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll come back with you soon. Okay, we are back to Studio A. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Lou. Great job. Also, Scott, I think it would be worth telling people, too, that today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash Cars of Carl out and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. You can download a title for free. And start listening right away. And we're going to have a banner up on the website of Cars of Carlisle as well. So if you don't type it in directly or your URL to go to find them at audibletrial.com forward slash Cars of Carlisle. Mm-hmm. Just check on uh, the website of Cars of Carlisle and we'll have a banner there. You can click and it should be a direct link there as well. Absolutely. Well, why Audible? Simply Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, News, comedy. There's everything in it. It is, yeah. Everything you can imagine from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. For example, I do a lot of time, or I spend a lot of time in my car going to different car show events. I know you've been uh, running along with me, doing a lot of travel, interstate, and um, going for these interviews to get the ready for our podcast. I spend a lot of time, so I listen to my Audible, and I, I have had listened to, I can't tell you how many books. And That's I, great. A lot of, for me, it's self-help and... But I just enjoy that kind of thing quite a bit. So After you've downloaded and listened to Cars of Carlisle podcast, then hop over and listen <laughs> That's to your right. Audible That's right. title. There you go. So how do you get your perk? So download that very free audiobook today. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Cars of Carlisle. Again, that is audibletrial.com forward slash Cars of Carlisle for your free audiobook. Do it today. Continue to look for more intercasts coming up from the guys. They'll be doing uh, these throughout the coming year. And uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, they put so much effort into this. I, I really appreciate having them on the team here. So if you would, continue to uh, get the word out, promote, let everybody know about us. If you haven't subscribed, by doing so, it's free, and you have us in your queue every Wednesday morning. It's a great way to go. And uh, we'll see you next week. And uh, as we do every week, it's think of it as your 30, 40 minute, just a road trip from life. Get away from all, all the things and, and just enjoy car people and, and car topics. We are here for you. This is your podcast. So I'll end by saying drive well, be well, and take care. <laughs>